Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. The Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed Balls. A steady as she goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. We're back for more X-Minister's questions, and we are back in Budget Week. Are we getting withdrawal symptoms? Do we wish we were holding the red boxes up or responding to the budget? Or Well, look, it's the best thing you ever do being in government. So, of course, we have a bit of withdrawal symptoms, but I don't really have withdrawal symptoms from delivering the budget because oh, I didn't yeah, do I'm it. sorry. Almost. And to be honest... That was at the entirely moment, I, my fault. <laughs> I'm far more stressed about our live social media outing at three o'clock on Wednesday afternoon when we're responding to the budget, not on the podcast feed, but on our social media feeds. That sounds very stressful. It's extremely stressful. My own personal experience of actually reading out the budget speech is that that's not too stressful because all you have to do is read the speech out. It's a big occasion. I was always afraid of losing my voice. That was my main worry at the time. So I used to have a kind of concoction of lime cordial, which was about half lime cordial and half water to keep me going rather than whiskey or brandy or whatever. I think I would find, or I would have found the reading of the speech the hardest bit. I actually found the House of Commons when you got into the repartee and you could go off script, but actually reading out a speech, we have to read every word exactly right. At the time, because of my stammer, that was a total nightmare. So I would have found the reading of the speech much harder than any yeah. other aspect of it. We've been sent by someone we both know, Stephanie Flanders, who now works at Bloomberg. She's in charge of the whole thing, really, pretty much. Yeah, I'm not sure John Micklethwaite, who's actually in charge of the whole thing, would agree. But yeah, no, but she's kind of quite a part of the whole economics and politics section. Yes, she is. She's a um, big cheese. Yes, well known to both of us. I think slightly better known to you than me. I've no comment to make about that. I don't know what you're talking about. Move on. <laughs> anyway, she has said to us that we should play the budget game. And this is uh, something that Bloomberg have put out. So you can go and play the budget game on their website. And it says, can you make better decisions as Chancellor than Jeremy Hunt? I've actually done it. There's about seven different choices you make. And then at the end, you get the verdict on your choices. And you know, the question is, how have you done? 
answers not too badly. Your MPs cheered the tax cuts, but you're not completely in the clear. You've only left yourself 0.5 billion of fiscal headroom and a historic low. A nervy wait to see how the financial markets react. For now, you take the acclaim and head back to the Treasury. I take the acclaim. Mm. I obviously did well in the Bloomberg game. (laughs) It's, it's a good moment in real life when they're all waving the order papers. If they're not, you're in real trouble. So are you saying that you've done it in real life and I've only done it on the Bloomberg game? I'm afraid so. Okay, well, in that case... Mm. Anyway, let's... I'm not bitter. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. However, thank goodness I'm going to be bailed out by Jackie, who's got a question. Hi, Ed and George. Love the podcast. I would like your views on Rachel Reeves' pronouncements that a Labour government will reinstate the pensions lifetime allowance that Jeremy Hunt abolished. I'm particularly interested in what you think, because Ed, you were a member of the government that originally introduced the lifetime allowance, and George, you slashed the limit twice. As an ageing professional with a SIP that exceeds the limit and not being a doctor or senior civil servant, I don't understand why it is right to reintroduce it when there are plenty of other protections in the system so that we can't fleece the exchequer. This has turned into a political hot potato and makes planning impossible. So this is a good question from Jacqueline. The lifetime allowance is a limit on how much you can save into a pension tax-free. Remember, the state supports you saving for a pension. It gives you tax relief on that. In a way, it doesn't give you tax relief on money you might spend on other things in your life. And I think there was a a legitimate question, which is how much support should the government give you for saving? And I reduced the amount that Labour put in to a million pounds. There were several reductions, but we ended up with a million pound lifetime allowance, which meant that you could save up to a million pounds tax free. And that is, you know, for most people, a very, very large sum of money. And it supported not the most lavish of lifestyles, but with a million pound pension pot, you could get a decent income in retirement. And, you know, I thought that was a fair balance between the state doing something that supports the right thing. Now, where it caused problems was with certain professions in the public sector, like doctors and judges and others, who actually have very generous pensions, which they don't contribute to as much as they would have done if they were in the private sector. It's part of the deal of working in the public sector. And their pension pots often got to be larger. They're not real pension pots. The government doesn't hold back the money for the doctor's pensions. It just pays it out of taxes today. But it did get to be, in some cases, more than a million pounds notionally. And that's why Jeremy Hunt introduced these changes. I wouldn't have abolished it in the way that he had. Has, and um, I'm not surprised that Labour is proposing to reintroduce a limit. I was surprised he abolished it too, because it was complicated for those particular special cases. But there were ways you could have solved it without abolishing the limit overall. And I think, uh, I don't know whether this was about the administrative ease, or whether it was more efficient, or whether he thought there was a political advantage. Jackie's right to say the limit isn't only the overall pot, it's also the amount you can put in each year. And I think you're allowed to invest up to 60,000 a year each year. But then again, I mean, £60,000 a year. I mean, £60,000 is a lot more than lots of people have in their pot for the whole of their working life. So um, £60,000 is a pretty generous limit. And then are you going to say people with pension pots over a million pounds are the people who ought to get more support? That that is the priority for using scarce tax revenues? It's not what you did. It's not what we did. It wouldn't surprise me if Rachel Reeves reintroduced it. That's what she said she's going to do. And Jackie, I think in the end, I'm afraid most people will say, fair enough. Right, next question. This one is from John. And we've answered one of John's questions before. He's a, he's a fan of the podcast. A and returner. Keep sending the questions in. And as you see, we uh, do pick those questions from people who are repeat senders. But here's John's latest question. 
In a previous podcast, George mentioned that real wages were down when compared against 2010. I was wondering if he could elaborate a little bit on that and how that's actually worked out. And uh, a further question, if I may, what prompted George to change his name from Gideon? I'll let you answer the second one first. Right. Um, two very important questions there from John. John, so, by the way, who was a serial returner, but looking, judging by George's reaction, that's your last question, John. Yeah, I didn't realise there was a question about my name change. <laughs> oh, I thought it was just an, a, answer so, it. So first of all, real wages are just when uh, the wages taking into account inflation. That's the answer to the first question. Second one, I, well, I just didn't like the name Gideon. That was the name my mother had given me and my parents had given me. And uh, How did she react? Well, the, you know, my, it was my mother who, when I was a teenager, and I said, I really don't like my name. She said, well, if you don't like your name, change it, George. Oh, no. So I did. Well, sorry, she didn't say change it, George. She said change it, Gideon. <laughs> did, did, did she? <laughs> Although if you'd asked Barack Obama, he'd have said change it, Jeffrey. Well, I was actually trying to keep the G in rather than the J. So uh, that's why I went from Gideon to George. It was also the name of my grandfather who uh, fought in the First World War. I think we should also say to John, the reason we chose this is because it's a really good question. We've actually had scores and scores of questions, but this real wages question is a good one because I think lots of people hear that term in real terms or in real wages. And what does it mean? And as you say, it's taking into account inflation. So if wages go up by 10%, but inflation was 15%, people would be worse off because prices would have risen faster than their wages. And therefore, you'd say in real terms, their real wages have fallen. Of course, the interesting thing with this is that you're using an average inflation inflation for the whole country. But if you are somebody who's living in rental accommodation, say, and rents have gone up a lot faster, it could be that even though it looks like your real wages on average have gone up for you because of those rising costs, they could actually have fallen. So it's always an average and not everybody will be affected in the same way. It's a way of trying to say, to answer the question that George and Ronald Reagan posed in a previous podcast, are you better off? By the way, real wages are the most important statistic when you're looking at a party's re-election chances if they're in government. Definitely. Anyway, we've got another one for George now, and this one's from Jeff. Hi, George and Eds. I hope you're well. My name's Jeff. I'm based in Paris, where I work for an international organisation. And I just wanted to say how much I love the podcast, in particular your mesmerising melange of economic commentary and idle chatter. You provide us all with such relief from Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. My question to the podcast falls more into the idle chatter category. In a recent edition of Jacob Rees-Mogg's State of the Nation programme on GB News, I'm sure you're both avid viewers. JRM claims that only liberals drink skimmed milk, while full-fat creamy milk will nourish your inner Tory. However, a 2014 Daily Mail article claimed that George kept semi-skimmed milk in a padlocked fridge during his time as Chancellor in order to avert the hungry gaze of Treasury colleagues. Is Jacob Rice? Is skimmed milk compatible with the Disraeli-esque political disposition? Well, Jeff, the thing is that JRM, as you call him, <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg, probably wouldn't think I was a uh, proper Tory. You'd probably think I was a bit liberal, which is why I haven't gone for the full skimmed milk, but the semi-skimmed. I'm surprised you don't have oat milk. Well, I do actually fancy an oat milk uh, cappuccino in the morning. I had one on the way here. A decaf oat milk chai latte? No, caffed. I'm not, can you have a chai latte with that? Anyway. I, so, I have no idea what it meant. I just said it. <laughs> we better get on to the... People order the, it in front of you in the, in the, in the thing and, I, you know... With vanilla. That's probably a bad idea. Anyway, um, go on. But I think the serious question here is the padlocked fridge in the Treasury. I didn't actually have a padlocked fridge that I was aware of, but there was a brilliant guy, a lovely guy called Kevin, 
who yeah. was the Chancellor's Messenger. That was his official title. And he'd been That's doing right. this job since the time of Nigel Lawson when I arrived. So he'd done it for Lamont and Major and Brown and, you know, Darling and so on. He delivered and, the Euro assessment to Tony Blair in 2003 to yeah. much consternation. Part of the British state does have these wonderful characters who are, you know, carry messages around Whitehall or look after bits of the historic building. So Kevin's job was to carry the Chancellor's messages around Whitehall, deliver the red boxes and get the coffees and the teas at the right moment. I believe he did keep the milk, I was told later, in a padlock fridge so that the Chancellor would always get his semi-skim milk when he wanted it. It was a total nightmare. I love Kevin, but the incentives were all wrong because Jeremy Hayward, the um, former cabinet secretary, great man now deceased, but when he was the Chancellor's private secretary, did a review of the Chancellor's operation. This is before 1997 and came up with this new system where Kevin was paid by the net return on the individual cups of coffee he served. So the more cups of coffee he served the more money he earned. But he also paid for the ingredients. So when you were in the Chancellor's office, every half hour, Kevin would come in and say, do you want a coffee? You had to say yes, because you knew that this was Kevin's livelihood. But the coffee he served was just awful. The cheapest coffee possible, because of course, you know, that was you're, you're his economic incentive. So I, I mean, it wasn't you know, a chai latte with vanilla and was not, oat milk. And I used to have to go back to my room every now and then and get a decent cup of coffee, having endured eight cups of kind of. You this know, is the hardship that a government Kevin's minister has instant. to endure. I mean, I, know. I think people out there, there's. I can hear some violins, actually. I know. Well, but the answer to this question from Jeff is, from my point of view, I go for semi-skimmed in tea. Full fat in Yorkshire puddings and on my muesli, but I have my coffee black. You could call that an almost centrist dad answer. But this milk thing is kind of weird in the Conservative Party because, you know, the accusation always used to be that if Labour people drank sparkling wine, they were a champagne socialist. For some reason, the Tory party has shifted from an obsession with champagne socialism to milk. If you drink semi-skim milk, you must be a lefty. Didn't the head of the Reform Party, Mr Tice, talk about the latte culture as being why our country is going to the dogs. I mean, what is this obsession with the far right with milk? Um, I don't know. It's really it's weird. Because, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, what are you on? Well, we know he's on full fat full milk. Full fat milk. There anyway, we next question is from Zoe. Hi, Ed and George. It's Zoe from London. Many years ago, I was a junior civil servant in 10 Downing Street and I got to attend the Black History Month reception. The then Prime Minister, David Cameron, totally ignored the speech we wrote for him and said the Conservative Party would have the first black Prime Minister. The crowd loved it, but at the time, I scoffed. However, it kind of seems like now it could happen with Kemi Badenoch and James Cleverley. So, George, do you think the Conservative Party membership will really vote for a black leader, given they didn't actually vote for Rishi? And Ed, given the Labour Party hasn't even had a female leader, do you think they would have a non-white leader after Keir Starmer? Love the podcast, guys. Bye. Well, let me go first. I mean, it's obviously a huge problem for Labour not to have had a woman leader. And the question is, could the next leader of the Labour Party be both a woman and also um, not be white as well? And that would be a big step forward. You know, if you look around at the moment, Shabana Mahmood in the Shadow Cabinet, on the edge of the Shadow Cabinet, Rishanara Ali, of course, Lisa Nandi, Tulip Sadiq. Those are all people who could potentially be the next Labour leader and kind of solve both of those historic wrongs from the Labour side. I think the big question for Labour, though, is other than David Lammy and Sadiq 
Khan, who you could put in the runners and riders to be the next Labour leader, the flow through at the moment of young male black candidates is really, really low. I think there's only one male black candidate who's been selected for a marginal but winnable seat. So there is an issue for Labour still, which is not good enough that the flow through of candidates from ethnic minority backgrounds is too low. And that's something I think the Labour Party really needs to focus on. So um, I'm broadening it out from the question, but it's a really, really good thing to be challenging politics about. So I think the Conservative Party, Zoe, is very proud that it breaks these glass ceilings before the left does on having female leaders and, in the case of Rishi Sunak, having a non-white leader. In fact, the Conservative Party, I noticed just in the last couple of days, has been putting out on social media the boast about having the first female leader, the first Jewish leader, Benjamin Disraeli, well, and the first ethnic minority leader in Rishi Sunak. Well, refusing Sunak. to call out Lee Anderson for being racist, well, which is kind of like... That's probably why they're putting out the social media posts to address that. But, you know, at the moment, I think it would be uncontroversial to say that Kemi Badenoch, who is a black woman, is the front runner to be the next Tory leader. Now, as we know, that can change a huge amount. And there are other candidates, Suella Braverman. So there's a whole range of candidates, as we've discussed previously, most of them female of the leaders, although James Cleverly would probably want to be included in the list of runners and riders. So the answer to your directly to your question is, I think the Conservative Party members would vote for one of these candidates. And at the moment, if the contest was held today, I think Kemi would win. And the issue that Zoe hints at, that in the case of Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak, part of the reason Liz Truss won was because she's white? I don't think that's the case. I really honestly don't. It never comes up and you don't even detect an undercurrent of it. I know that's not how people would imagine the local Tory branches. I think they... You know, those who aren't Conservatives can sometimes take the view that the kind of Tory party members are a bit bigoted and so on. That has just never been my experience. And the fact that so many both female leaders and leading stars of the cabinet are non-white, I think is proof of that. Zoe, that was a brilliant question. We'll be back in a moment with a few more, including an intriguing question about George's Star Wars credit. Back in a minute. 
BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Now, Katie May has sent us this question. Hi, George and Ed. As we gear up for a general election, I would like to know how much has canvassing changed between the times you were both initially elected to now? Are candidates more or less likely to go door to door nowadays than when you were both starting out? I'm not the best person place to answer this question because I didn't do a huge amount of canvassing back then and I haven't done any now. So uh... Such a safe CMP. No, I, I did like, I, I did do count. I just thought that a better use of my time would be to position myself in the town centre. I had several towns in my constituency. So I'd move from one town to another. I'd stand in the middle of the shopping street with a load of supporters and balloons and leaflets. And that way, I found I met many, many dozens of people. Whereas if you go canvassing, often my experience was, given it was a kind of relatively prosperous commuter belt type seat. that Were the drives too long to walk up? The, well, the drives weren't too long. But there were lots of Acacia Avenues and so on. Um, there was a wonderful road called Fletson Road in Wilmslow, where all the Manchester United footballers lived. And they did have these enormous houses and they would have like the Hummer, the Ferrari parked out front. I did canvas that road a couple of times and canvas some of the uh, the then stars of United. They were surprisingly interested in the tax rates that a Labour government might impose. So you didn't do much canvassing other than footballers. This is so revealing. Okay. When I um, arrived as a new candidate in 2005, the constituency of Normanton didn't own a computer. So there was nowhere to collect any canvassing returns. And as a consequence, they didn't do any canvassing. And the reason I did it all the time, I did it every weekend, Saturday and Sunday for 10 years, was because the only way to get other people to come and do it and get into the swing of it was to do it myself. And, you know, I was fighting marginal seats, so it was really important. And interestingly, it's not important for the way that people might think if you haven't done this kind of politics before. It's not about persuading people on the doorstep. When we used to do telephone canvassing, the first time I did it, I got into terrible trouble. I was banned from telephone canvassing to begin with because I got on the phone with somebody who was clearly a Tory and argued with them for an hour about politics and issues and I came off and they said what are you doing my campaign coordinator that was a total waste of time in the last hour you could have talked to 20 people and you spoke to one person for the whole hour because of course what you're trying to do is not persuade people that's not what happens on the doorstep what you want to do is find out do people vote or not and if they do vote are they definitely Conservative or are they definitely Labour or are they a swing voter? And if you've identified the people who are your promise or the people who are potentially winnable, those are the ones you go back to again and again, sending them leaflets or letters or Do you think it actually works? Content. I mean, I, well, no, it didn't I, work I, for I, me, did it? Well, no, I mean, I'm not, I don't want well, <laughs> I wasn't actually trying to make a... That. No, no, but it's, no, it's, that's my point, right? So you lost your seat, but you were obviously working very hard at it, canvassing every Saturday and Sunday. Do you think as a result, it's kind of hard to know this, but the vote you got was higher than it would otherwise have been because of your canvassing. But ultimately, it's not enough to save your seat when there's a swing against you. That's right. I think what we used to say, and you know, I've not done any canvassing since 2015. I've been out of any of that kind of politics for a long time now. But we used well, to do say... Do you not canvass for a vet? No. 
But I do vote for <laughs> exactly. Her. She thinks you you might not. Uh, I you, might, th- you end up going to spend an hour arguing on the doorsteps of Castleford. And, Look, when uh, I went off to do documentaries for the BBC and then television work, I thought you know my party political activism is behind me, right. and that's the answer to that question. But back in the day, the view was. If you had had a direct personal contact with somebody six or seven times over the course of the year before the election, that made them more likely to come out and vote and more likely to vote for you if they were a supporter. And I think if you're doing that for hours every Saturday and Sunday, you have to believe that it makes I mean, a difference. Does it? Well, in the end, the swing is the thing. What's happening nationally I guess you is don't a much know. bigger deal. I only lost by 300. So maybe if we had tried harder... That could have made the difference. Whereas if you look at those... those do you, Scottish do you in your heart of hearts think that? Or do you think, you know what, that we could never have got those 300 votes? So in the general election, I travelled all around the country, yeah. visiting loads of marginal seats, doing lots of television, because I thought if we could win the national argument, that would be the thing which would make the difference rather than the extra hours in my constituency. Because I think that the national swing is much the bigger deal. But at the margin... If you are a local MP with a big operation and you can go out there and make the contact, of course it makes a difference, but it doesn't overwhelm the big picture. Pretty interesting about pavement politics. Now, we've got another question. Oh, I like this question. This comes from someone called George. I would ask this question of you anyway, but we found a different George to ask this question. Hi, Ed and George. It's George here from Norwich. Question for Ed. Whatever did happen to the Edstone? Just remind everyone... Let's remind everyone what the Edstone is. I don't think I want to. I mean, this this is not a good moment. Well, it's not named after this Ed. It's sitting in front of me, is it? No, look, this was a general election in which we were proving that two Eds aren't better than one. I think you're not doing justice to this question. So first of all... I'm not even going to talk about this this Edstone. You you, you tell them. In 2015, Ed Miliband, your good friend and political partner at the Mm. time, he unveils... A huge lump of stone. Inexplicably. Yes. I mean, why? (laughs) Well, you can answer the question, not me. You know, it was like a kind of giant gravestone and it had Labour's pledges. He was trying to win. Chiseled on it. His epitaph. I think he was trying to say, you know, these pledges are so, we're so committed to them that we've chiseled them in stone. Yeah, but... Like the sort of Ten Commandments, but they... They paid a stonemason to write them on a stone. What did that mean? Well, I guess it was a disaster because it got lampooned and then it looked grand. And anyway... um, Didn't it end up in a garden in South London? Well, that's George's question. Where is it? I don't know. I mean, I heard a story that... broken up in a quarry. I heard that a Tory donor had bought it, but I then discovered that maybe the Tory donor had been sold a replica of the Edstone in order to raise money for the Tory party. Wasn't it Richard Caring, the, the restaurateur? Yes. Well, that's what I heard. But you know, In that case, why would he have it on display as an epitaph? Well, maybe we Richard, Richard can get in touch with us if he has the Edstone. Otherwise, we don't know where it is. But anyone listening to this who knows where the Edstone is, please let us know. I think what we need is a museum of political artefacts which the Edstone could take. I mean, maybe a little gallery at the British Museum, just yeah. thinking. I mean, you know, who could I petition to do such a thing? And what would you put in it? You'd have the Edstone, Liz Truss's lectern, Margaret Thatcher's handbag. What else would you put in it? Peter Mandelson's guacamole. His guacamole, <laughs> uh, Tony Blair's mug, Rishi Sunak's coffee cup. I know, Peter, you claim that's not a real story. This is when Peter Mandelson is supposed to have asked for guacamole in the fish and chip shop in Hartlepool when he was staring at some mushy peas. But um, I know, I know, Peter, it's not true. The rumour is that Neil Kinnock made that up as a joke. That's the rumour. That's very plausible. (laughs) It's very, very plausible. (laughs) Anyway. I'm trying to think what we'd put in from your time. Well, maybe a hard hat. Your diet guide. Yeah, well. 
we do actually want people to come to the British Museum. I'm not sure you're <laughs> making the strongest case for our new gallery. I, anyway, I quite like the idea of it. Talking about the Blair and Brown ice cream van from oh, 2005. Yes, yes, absolutely. Anyway, I think I think you've set us going on this one, um, George. Whatever your name is, George. Yes. George. Now, we have got one last question, haven't we? And it's from Russ. And he asks, I remember a surprising ending to the rebooted Star Wars franchise when George got a note of thanks in the credits to Star Wars. The Force Awakens. Amazing. How did this come about? Was George asked whether he wanted it? And is Ed jealous of his podcasting partner? Yes, is the answer to that, right? No. (laughs) But tell us first and I'll tell you what I think. Well, I have to say this was quite a good moment. In the credits to the first of the kind of Star Wars remakes, right at the end, there's a credit to me. And I have to say, I I was invited to the premiere, which was unbelievably exciting with like Carrie Fisher and Luke Skywalker and all that. We know who was there, but why did you have a credit? By the way, I sat, after the film had ended, I insisted on sitting there alone in the cinema at the premiere for five minutes as the credits rolled to see my own credit. But the, um, <laughs> that everybody else had left. It was in the Odeon, like, Leicester Square. It was, like, massive. Can I, can I just say, that is pathetic. No, it's not pathetic. I'm I mean, a, if you're admirable If you're my age, you're our age, Star Wars is a massive deal, and to get a credit in a Star Wars movie is a pretty cool. Why? Right? Well, the very straightforward reason is that the producer of Star Wars was a very, very impressive lady called Kathy. Didn't, you didn't sort out his tax affairs. No, it's a she. Kathy Kennedy came to us, the British government, and said, we're thinking of making some new Star Warses and we're thinking of making them in Britain, but we've got rival offers from North Carolina, from a Canadian province. What do you got to offer us? And to his credit, the arts minister at the time, Ed Vasey, said, George, have you got any time to meet this woman? It's going to be a real big deal. Star Wars is going to, they're going to spend a huge amount on film production. So I met her on uh, Saturday in Downing Street. And I have to say, she was a very tough negotiator, far tougher than any cabinet minister in the spending departments that I ever dealt with as chancellor. And we struck a deal revolving film tax credits and the like in order to get Star Wars made in Britain. I think they spent over a billion pounds as a result on Star Wars production in the various studios around Britain. And the one thing I got out of it, as well as the credit in the movie, was that she gave me a series of lightsabers for my then young children, I then had to declare in the ministerial gifts section lightsabers as uh, things that I had received. Well, look, but I'm very proud because I would, look, I'm just going to end. I think the film industry and television industry is enormously important and the tax credits, some of them first introduced under a Labour government, but I doubled down on them, expanded them and so on. They've really turbocharged the creative industry sector and I'm hoping on the budget on uh, Wednesday that we get some more good news in that space so those were the tax credits you did like as opposed to the other tax credits that you weren't so keen on i'm extremely pleased that you backed the film industry in this way i have to say though i'm not in any way jealous because uh i'm not a star wars fan yvette is a massive star wars fan what in our family big films the late 70s i love greece yeah i like the spy love me Star Wars leaves me totally cold. Oh my God. I've only ever watched the main film like once. The I'm, main film, honestly. Well, I, honestly, I'm not a fan of Star Wars at all. However, what I am a fan of is the Star Wars ride at Disneyland, which I have probably been on I know, 15 times. And to bring this back to the budget, back in 1998, when Yvette and I got married, January 98, We couldn't go on some long honeymoon because we had the budget coming up in six weeks' time. So we went for three days on a honeymoon to 
to Paris. And we spent one day going around galleries and the other day at Disneyland Paris, just the two of us. And I think I did the Star Wars ride three times and the Black Hole ride eight. Massive Disney fan, Star Wars leaves me cold. But that bit where you go, uh, uh, off you go in the Star Wars ride at Disneyland, absolutely fabulous. I don't know whether to laugh or cry about your honeymoon. But anyway, <laughs> we should move on to our own. And we've only had one. We, we should uh, roll our own <laughs> credits. And we will be back later this week to unpick Jeremy Hunt's budget. And don't forget, we're going to be doing a special social media reaction straight after the budget around three o'clock before we do our normal podcast on Thursday. And if you follow us on our socials at Paul Currency, you can send us in questions. You can also watch clips from our show every week. And uh, if you fancy it, do go onto your podcast platforms and send us a rating, even give us a comment. We'd love that, especially if you like the podcast. So this week, unusually, we will see you on Wednesday and then we will see you again on Thursday. See you then. The Force be with you. Is it, may the Force be with you, Ed. Did I get it wrong? <laughs> yes. I don't watch these films. So we've discovered. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.